episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akil Amar today. Good morning, Akil. Good morning. We're recording this actually in the morning. Andy is still with me from his visit up to Yale. We did a few, several days down in Florida, and it was a little warmer down there, Andy. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm looking out at, uh, at the snow and the, the frozen tundra of uh, Connecticut. Yeah. Yes, but, it is, but this has a, a beauty, I hope you admit, Andy. It, it, it is actually today a beautiful winter wonderland here. Yeah, take me back to Florida, please. Last time we talked about the case of Trump v. Anderson, which is coming to the Supreme Court for oral arguments on February 8th. And this is, of course, the case about the possible disqualification from Donald Trump of Donald Trump from the Colorado primary ballot and presumably, I suppose, the general election ballot as well and our brief in the case. So let's uh, pick up where we left off when we were talking a little bit about um, the significance of, uh, of John B. Floyd. So last time we told you the story of this trader and how he became an archetype or you know, sort of the new Benedict Arnold. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about why it mattered, specifically in the context of what would become the 14th Amendment. So for those of you that are following along on the brief, we're up to about page 11 on the brief, so you can you can look there. So Akhil, um, why this story? Why is this so important uh, to the brief and to this case? Because law is a human thing. Humans do it. It's not just some robot. And humans have purposes, intentions, um, in a way that AI doesn't. We want to know why people uh, drafted and then ratified the 14th Amendment in general, 14th Amendment Section 3 in particular, and they had things in their head, that they, they had problems that they were trying to solve, just like you, know, we, you and I as human beings have problems we're trying to solve. They were trying to solve collective problems, national problems, political problems. Maybe we're just trying to figure out how to jumpstart our car or you know, what, what we're going to cook for dinner or something. And so, okay, what are we going to cook for dinner? Well, you need to know, oh, there we, we're hungry, okay? Um, um, or maybe we're not, so we're going to have a, a light dinner or heavy dinner. So what are they trying to do? What are they motivated by? And my claim is they had centrally in mind at least two images. You know, people have images in their heads, you know, um, of, of things. This is what they think about. Of course, they're thinking about the Civil War itself and Floyd as open and avowed trader, along with Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens. Stevens is the vice president of the Confederacy, the self-described Confederacy. Jefferson Davis, the president of the self-described Confederacy. Robert E. Lee, of course, the leading Confederate general. So, of course, they're taking up arms against the United States. Floyd is one of millions of others. Okay. Um, but he, I claim, is more central to 14.3 is Floyd, even though he's dead by the time 14.3 is ultimately ratified. Stevens is still alive. Jefferson Davis is still alive. Robert E. Lee is still alive. And by the way, in the new book, I make a big deal, the one that I'm working on, that Alexander Stevens' full name is Alexander Hamilton Stevens, that Jefferson Davis's name is Jefferson 
Davis. Robert E. Lee descends from uh, Light Horse Harry Lee, who uh, was Washington's uh, favorite cavalryman, the man who very famously eulogized Washington as first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his country. And why am I telling you all of that? Because one big issue about the Civil War is who was faithful to the founding and the founding fathers and the founding instrument and who was not. And I actually in the book say, oh, Lincoln was faithful. He was the true founding son and not Jefferson Davis, um, named after Jefferson. Our audience has heard of Robert E. Lee, um, ordinary um, citizens in textbooks, Jefferson Davis, and maybe Alexander Stevens. I bet most of the justices on the Supreme Court um, who are the, the most immediate audience for the brief and, and their law clerks have heard of Stevens. They haven't heard of Floyd. And and I want to tell a story about how, yes, it was about the Civil War. And in the Civil War itself, Lee looms very large. So does Jeff Davis. So does Alexander Stevens. And, and more than half a million people die. And yes, Floyd was there. He was actually a general. He was actually in a very important battle, the, the first Union victory, in fact, of a, a major victory, as it turns out, of the fall of Fort Donaldson in Tennessee. It's in the Western theater of the war. So people might know a little bit about, you know, the Civil War itself and um, some of its leading characters, but they might not know today about Floyd. But Floyd loomed, I say, even larger in the imaginary in the minds of many of the people during the Civil War and the drafting of the 14th Amendment because he played a key role in what I've been calling the first insurrection before the fall of Fort Sumner, before the cannons roared, before the bodies piled up. Uh, Floyd was part of a plot to prevent the lawful inauguration of Joseph Biden. I mean, Abraham Lincoln. And part of that plot involved actually trying to prevent Congress from lawfully meeting and opening the Electoral College ballots and certifying the election of Joe Biden, uh, um, Abe Lincoln. And of course, uh, kind of faking these errors um, but to show you the parallelism. Now, why was Floyd even worse than those guys? Because in what I'm calling the first insurrection, which preceded Fort Sumter and its fall, he was actually using the powers of his office to stage this insurrection and violate his oath. Jeff Davis took an oath and he, uh, to the Constitution. He was Secretary of War. He was Senator. He held other positions, and he betrayed it, that oath. Um, and so did Alexander Stevens, who was a, a member of Congress. He took an oath. He betrayed it. So did Robert E. Lee, a military oath. They all betrayed their oaths. But in that first insurrection, they're not in executive power in the cabinet using the power of office to betray the oath. They're not bending their office to betray their oath. And Floyd did that. So actually, he's paradigmatic. He's the central guy that many people during the 1860s, many unionists are actually focusing on as uniquely malignant. And if you think that 14th Amendment Section 3 is only about the Civil War, then you'll miss stuff. You'll just focus on Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens, and you'll say January 6th was nothing like the Civil War. And you'll miss that January 6th was entirely like February 13th, 1861. And you won't know the backstory of that. And Floyd looms very large in the backstory of that first insurrection. 
Yeah, and it was he was very much on their mind. You have some quotes from the Congressional Globe that I alluded to last time. So well, let me read a couple of them. These are in footnote uh, 16 from the bottom of page 12 in the brief. So, for example, so we have Representative Cook speaking in 18, February 1868 uh, in the discussion of Section 3. He says, quote, persons who had, like Floyd, held high office in the government and betrayed and well-nigh ruined the government, whose constitution they had solemnly sworn to support, should not again be entrusted with power over loyal men, unquote. So that's before the 14th Amendment is adopted, but that's who they have. That's a perfect quote. It connects it to Benedict Arnold, who looms large in American imagination then and now. And they're saying, okay, it's about the new Benedict Arnold who took an oath and betrayed that oath and actually used the power of office to betray that oath. And that's what the 14th Amendment Section 3 is about, not just traitors, but people who betrayed their oaths. And in fact, it do, the 14th Amendment Section 3 doesn't require that the betrayal of office is actually the way in which you betrayed your country. Other people, like Robert E. Lee, resigned their office and then did treasonous things. Um, Jeff Davis resigned his office and then did treasonous things. Alexander Stevens, squarely covered uh, by 14.3. Stevens actually opposed secession in Georgia. But Floyd is a, an easier and core case because he's doing treasonous things, not just while in office, but using the powers of his office to do these treasonous things. And today, the person who's the closest counterpart to that, we argue in the brief, is Donald Trump. You know, I think it's interesting. This is not in the brief, but you and I were talking about it. What is the, really the purpose of an oath? Why does the Constitution require an oath in, in many cases? And why, why do we care about the oath? Is it just a performative, you know, sort of pro forma thing that really has no significance? And indeed, it, the Constitution actually spells out the words of the presidential oath. So one of the things we had said is that when you, if we think about what's going on when one votes for someone, there's... Uh, an expression of trust in that. We don't really know what the person that we're voting for is going to do once they're in office. We don't really know what situations they'll be confronted with or how they'll respond to it. And we're trusting them with power over us that we don't get to really take back immediately. We, we have their mechanisms for taking back power eventually, but but in the in the short run, they can do a lot of damage. And if we don't know what they're going to do, we need some kind of assurance. And the oath gives us some additional insurance because they pledge what the Declaration of Independence signers called you know, their sacred honor to our service. And so it's partly with the knowledge that they're going to take this oath and it will, it will give us some comfort. It will give us some protection that we entrust them with this power. But once we've gone through that process and the person has broken their oath in this manner, then we no longer have that protection available to us. And that's something that's over and above our vote. So, you know, there's the vote and then there's the oath. And we vote knowing that they will take the oath and it provides us with, with some protection. Once that protection has been removed, I think 14.3 can be viewed as, 
we no longer can vote for them because it's the combination of the vote and the oath that gives the nation comfort to give them this power. And that's no longer available, and it's particularly not available with an oath breaker that has actually used that power in a damaging way. That's the, the if you will, the paradigm case of where the oath no longer avails. And I think that's one way of thinking about why it would be necessary to have such a restriction. Your comment. Um, very deep. I'll go in three or four different directions here. And, and we didn't pre-rehearse this part of it, but um, let's go there because it's interesting. I begin my book, America's Constitution and Biography, where the Constitution begins with the preamble. And that's actually um, a performative act. Constitution is not just a text, it's a deed, a doing, a constituting, an ordainment, an establishment. We, the people of the United States, do ordain and establish. We're actually doing something. And it's a we do. And it's a collective thing, and the we do is voting on the document itself. Now, that's mirrored, that opening we do, by, in the middle of the document, an I do. It's the only time, actually, that we have first-person singular pronouns rather than first-person plural. And it's very personal. The Constitution specifies word for word the presidential oath. It, it requires all sorts of folks to take oaths in Article 6. It requires oaths in the context of Fourth Amendment search warrants. It requires oaths in, in a bunch of places. But in the middle of Article 2, the president's oath is specified word for word because the oath is that important. Article 2 is actually really short. It's under-specified in a whole bunch of ways. We've talked about that in previous episodes and why some of the reasons that it was under-specified because they wanted George Washington to kind of tailor the details of the thing once he was actually um, in power, in office, I was then in a position to nip here and tuck there. But the, the oath is specified word for word, the presidential oath, and it's not a we do. Oh, it's very personal. It's an I do. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States and will to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Oh, wow. Okay. So um, since... You and I are ridiculous <laughs> fans of The Godfather. You see, the oath is very personal. It's an I and a my, the best of my ability. So yes, on this, you know, Sonny would say, you're taking this very personal, Mikey. Okay, it's very personal. We're picking, and, and no office is more personal than the present because it revolves around one person whose character we have to be able to rely on. 24, 7, 365. That's not true of the cabinet, which is a group. That's not true of the Supreme Court, which is a, a collectivity, much less the entire federal judiciary, which is a much larger um, collectivity. It's not true of the House which is supposed to be a numerous body. It's not true of the Senate, which is supposed to be smaller than the House, but still you know, big enough to, to give us confidence. Only in the presidency is power concentrated in one person, far more than a chief justice or a speaker of the House or a president pro tem of the Senate or the presiding officer of the Senate when the president pro tem isn't there, namely, we call that person the vice president. So it's very personal. It's an oath. The Constitution takes seriously, therefore, presupposes um, individual virtue and character. Now I'm going to go in a different direction. You may not love it, Andy. And um, we've talked about this offline. But there are all sorts of different kinds of oaths. But if you were an anti-Clinton Republican in the 1990s, this is actually what you said in the context of the impeachment. 
well, he violated his marital oath. And if he violated his marital oath, how do we know that he is you know, untrustworthy? And other people said, marital oaths are different than oaths of public service and sexual infidelity is different than political and legal infidelity. And then they said, okay, fine. But he violated another oath. He took a solemn oath while he was president, not just the presidential oath. They took this other oath to solemnly, you know, uh, tell the truth in a judicial proceeding. And he's sitting president of the United States and he's taking this oath to tell the truth and then he didn't tell the truth. And if he didn't tell the truth, and this isn't just a marital oath, then he's an oath breaker. And the counter argument was, yeah, he didn't tell the truth, but he didn't tell the truth about sex and people kind of maybe lie about sex in all sorts of various ways and it doesn't make them unfit for, for office holding. He didn't really violate his presidential oath as such, but, but that was the debate. But this is so much easier, okay, when actually you're violating your presidential oath. And it's not just that you have to take it and it's specified word for word. The Constitution, Andy, says it's the first Thing you have to do before you do anything else. You take this oath. Article 2, let me just pull out my pocket constitution here, because it's so interesting if we're trying to figure out what the constitution is all about. It says, before he shall enter into the execution of his office, he shall take the following oath or affirmation. And then it specifies it word for word. Now, that oath doesn't make him president or her one day. That they become president at the nanosecond, uh, at, the, at the chime of the clock, um, every four years. The Constitution today, actually, in the amendment, specifies it's noon. It tells us the precise moment at which you know, one Cinderella poofs into rags and the new president emerges. There's a seamlessness of executive power in England. The king is dead. Long live the king. There's no interval between the death of one monarch and the beginning of the reign of the other. Um, the oath is important ceremonially, but you're king before you're crowned. And in the crown, of course, there's a lot of attention to that coronation. Edward VIII was never crowned, but he was king. Elizabeth is queen for, what, a year and a half before Churchill basically approves of the, the coronation itself, and then the holy oil is, is, is put on. So, um, But that doesn't make you the monarch. It's one of the things you're supposed to do as monarch. And in, in this, we don't want we don't wait 18 months before the, the, the new president. It's before he should it's supposed to be before he undertakes anything else, he takes this oath. And so Clinton was a harder case because the oaths that he betrayed were arguably merely an oath to tell the truth and merely an oath of marital fidelity and not quite the presidential oath as such. Um, I think that, uh, you know, in, in, in the cases that you're describing, if you wanted to put Clinton on the stand as a witness in another case, okay, uh, to something else, then you could impugn his value as a witness by saying he lied, he broke his oath to tell the truth as a witness. So he's particularly unsuited to being a witness because we need a witness to tell the truth. Whereas the president, if he breaks his oath to defend the Constitution, then he's particularly unsuited to defend the Constitution, um, as opposed to whether he's particularly suited to be a witness. Now, it doesn't mean you don't want him to tell the truth. You don't want him to be faithful to those oaths. But a generic breaking of oath is different from, from breaking a specific it, oath. 
It is, and now you can. But now you, but you can see how even in the Clinton case, they wanted to bring it interestingly close to the idea of oath breaking. You see, because you know, now here's actually. Let me just you know put the last pin in this point. Okay, saying did he violate the presidential oath? Now here's what John B. Floyd's successor said. This is the new Secretary of War. Floyd steps down because he opposes any effort to fortify Fort Sumter. Okay, he, he wants the federal government to abandon even Fort Sumter. And Buchanan, spineless, pusillanimous though he was, didn't want to go that far. So Floyd resigns. Abraham Lincoln is elected uh, in no, early November 1860. South Carolina purports to secede early in the afternoon of December 20th, 1860. Some of the forts fall seven days later, begin to fall seven days later. Floyd resigns December 29th, 1860, but he's part of a massive plot to hand over the national, the keys to the national security to the rebels, the secessionists. That's why he's, you know, Benedict Arnold, quite literally, who was trying to give the keys to West Point, to Major Andre, the keys to American national security. So he's precisely Benedict Arnold, but his successor as Secretary of War is actually a guy named Holt is actually a loyal person. Let me just remind you, we did this last episode, what Holt says about the presidency itself. And again, most people, you know, don't know these names. They're not household names the way Benedict Arnold is or Robert E. Lee. Here's what Holt says. The highest and most solemn responsibility upon a president withdrawing from the government is to secure his successor a peaceful inauguration. You know, so he's saying, oh, it's not to tell the truth in every way or something. That's his highest and most solemn responsibility. Even Buchanan discharged that responsibility. Our, our worst, one of our two worst presidents, along with, with Franklin Pierce. And Donald Trump didn't do that. And, and on the contrary, he conspired and connived and plotted and ins- with others and cited others to frustrate that peaceful transfer. He was worse than Buchanan. He was akin to John B. Floyd, but with vastly more power and betrayed an even more highly visible and important oath, the presidential oath that he took in front of all of us. That's the case. So I think his, his, one way to think about it, his actions parallel those of John B. Floyd and his inactions contrast with the actions of Winfield Scott. So, um, so, so you've got him on, on both ends there. I think that's why we've drawn attention to the later thing because it, it highlights his inaction in fortifying the Capitol appropriately because he wanted the disruption to take place. Um, um, there are, it's a little harsh to basically say, oh, you engaged in an insurrection, you gave aid and comfort because of things you didn't do. Because you might say, well, engage, that's a verb, but it's an action verb. Give, that's, a, that's an action verb. And how is just merely doing nothing, engaging or giving? That is an issue. We talk about it in the brief. It's part of our 20 questions. And here are the strong answers. First, in law, it is true that lots of times there's no affirmative obligation to act. Um, legally, in most situations, I'm entitled to see a person in distress on the side of the curb and just walk past them. 
Now, the Bible, the New Testament might tell me I failed in my responsibility to be the Good Samaritan, but legally I'm not under a duty to offer assistance in all sorts of situations. If I merely do nothing, I'm not culpable. But here are two exceptions to that general proposition. This is you know, law generally. One, if I, if someone is drowning, I, I don't have to go in and save them. Even if I could do so with ease, even if all I have to do is I, I stand on the shore, just reach my hand out or throw a lifeline out. I don't have to do that. Even if I could do it at almost no cost to myself. And here's just a little aside. My late father-in-law actually uh, way back when did actually jump in and save my father's life. Uh, many years ago, they were friends in medical school when my father was drowning. And out of that, you know, came all, uh, an amazing friendship and, and a marriage and children and all the rest. So, so we should be well, good Samaritans. In my case, my father pulled me out of the water when I was, uh, when I had fallen in the water as a child, he pulled me out by my hair, um, which, <laughs> you know, I'm grateful for. And I still have a head of hair. Um, but uh, what I what I also have is a fear of the water, but that's another matter. Okay, well, I'm going to talk about fathers in just a second. Ordinarily, you have no legal duty to save a drowning man. And by the way, in Kitty Genovese's situations and all the rest, all of us did nothing. And, you know, so which of us, you know, if one of us has an obligation, why not the other and the other? And that's part of the reason the law doesn't oblige action in all sorts of situations, because who had the duty? But here's one situation where you do have a duty. If you throw someone in the water, you know, you have an obliga- much more of an affirmative obligation to try to fish them out. Maybe even if you accidentally push them in the water. But if they're in the water because of things that you pre-existingly did, you're in a different situation than a mere bystander. That's, um, well, here's another um, example, Akil. If, if I promise to pull you out of the water. So in other words, suppose I say, okay, I'm going to throw you in the water. You don't know how to swim, but don't worry. If you have any trouble, I'll pull you out. Mm-hmm. And I throw you in the water and you're drowning. I have to pull you out. I promised I would do that. If I promise to, pr- to protect and defend the Constitution and I know that it's going to be under threat and I don't do anything to protect it, if I don't fortify the Capitol, I promised I would do that. And now I didn't do it. So, so even now if we're... I didn't cause it in the first place, but if I if I promised to do it, and if I you know kind of reasonably knew it was going to happen, and I don't do anything about it, that I had an obligation to do. If I'm the one that promised to do it, because so in the case of the president, he promises to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, and and if I say Winfield Scott, I'm James Buchanan, go protect the Capitol because it's going to be under siege, and he doesn't do that then he's at fault. So now we're segueing into a second and possibly third um, reason for uh, requiring affirmative actions on the part of folks. One is you did affirmatively act before and therefore created a relationship with the, the victim and a special obligation to act, okay? Because of what you affirmatively did before. Now there's the second idea. Well, maybe what you did before is actually with words and, and not with you know your arms pushing someone, but making a promise, okay? And which you then undertake affirmative obligations, especially if it's a promise to fish you out, to defend, okay? Third and related, 
sometimes when some people have special authority in a situation, their mere existence is preventing other people from otherwise acting, okay? Mm -hmm. um, because they're the ones who are supposed to act, and maybe they even have, in effect, the authority to oblige others to stand down. So if you're the commander-in-chief, you can call off the armed forces, and if they defy that, they're in real trouble, unless you're, you're in effect, the mutinous one. And, and when the captain is mutinous, that's a little bit complicated. That's the Kane mutiny. And it all converges with John Trump. He affirmatively plotted and incited. He lit the fuse, so to speak, or, you know, got them, you know, all hopped up in all sorts of ways, the proud boys and oath keepers, uh, 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 yes, malefactors, you know. Um, he, he brought them all together, riled them up. That these are affirmative actions that therefore impose a special duty on him. He promised to us all that he would defend the Constitution and his most solemn ex undertook the office and his most solemn ex officio obligations, according to Holt, are to preserve a proper transfer of power. And he's, his very existence is preventing, for example, Mike Pence from ordering the Capitol be fortified because Mike Pence is the vice president, not the president. Mike Pence ordinarily doesn't have authority to countermand his implicit or explicit order to stand down, you see. That's the Kane mutiny sort of situation. It's not in the drowning person situation. It's as if someone says, don't worry, I've to the crowd. People are, are about to rush in. And, they, and he says, don't worry, you know, I've got this. This we're, we're faking this whole thing. He's not really drowning this play acting or something. And because he, one person tells other people to stand down, they stand down. His very existence in the situation actually discourages other would-be rescuers or Samaritans. So all of that's involved. And we talk about all of that in the brief um, when we talk about actions and inactions and how they intertwine. And Floyd did certain things affirmatively, and then he tried to sit on his hands in other, at other moments when the forts were falling. It's a combination of action and inaction that I think is far more useful in thinking legally and thinking about Trump than, let's say, Jeff Davis, Robert E. Lee, and Alexander Stevens, who did other bad things, but not quite in the same way that, that Trump did. Trump's closest counterpart is Floyd, and Floyd was the paradigm, or one of the paradigms for 14th Amendment, Section 3. That's the claim in the brief. Right. It's not to say that uh, Jefferson Davis wouldn't have been covered under 14th 3, but, he, but that this is kind of on all fours, uh, Floyd, with Trump. With um, the first and, insurrection, and if the, in fact, if anything, um, Trump is what we would say in law off for Shiori, because he's not merely Secretary of State or Secretary of War, which we now today call Secretary of Defense, the Lloyd Austin uh, position. But Trump wasn't merely a cabin officer, he was the highest executive officer. He's Floyd in law, we would say, off for Shiori, even more strongly. Mm -hmm. Okay. One thing we don't go, you don't go into that much in the brief is the ins and outs of the adoption of the 14th Amendment. But uh, you do mention some things about an early draft, which we mentioned in the last uh, episode, uh, which is, was more, uh, more oriented towards disenfranchisement rather than disqualification, and which had a limited term, unlike the ultimate Section 3, which does not, is not limited to the late insurrection or, you know, which, um, actually that language is gone. 
from the uh, and and deliberately so from the later version of, of section three. Andy, um, what you just said was that the first draft of the Fourteenth Amendment, section three, just to re repeat for uh, our audience, differed in about four ways. It was about disfranchisement, not disqualification from office. It applied to all insurrectionists, um, millions, rather than just a few thousand who had violated an oath and then were insurrectionists. Um, it didn't have a congressional amnesty provision quite. So in some ways it was way more sweeping, but in one way it was way narrower because it was only about the insurrections of the 1860s and its sunset after a certain point. And as written, yes, it's, it's much narrower. It's only about disqualification, not disfranchisement. And it's only oath break being insurrectionists, not just all insurrectionists. So it doesn't target millions. It targets a few thousand folks. It provides for amnesty. So it's softer in all these ways. Okay. But in one respect, it's more emphatic. It's not just about the 1860s, it's about any future insurrection. It's about us in the 2020s, you see, because they thought they actually maybe had lived through something that had an enduring lesson for their progeny. That when this happens again, listen to us because we lived through it. You can't allow the Floyds back in absent congressional amnesty. That would be a yeah. mistake. And I think, you know, in that sense, it's like most of the Constitution, which is not, you know, except for a few provisions, it's not time limited. It, uh, you know, it, it purports to lay down laws for the future, can be amended. Sometimes it'll have congressional oversight in one respect or another. In this case, you have amnesty as a possibility. So it's, it's actually quite, you know, in line with the rest of the Constitution in many ways. And so. Gerard Magliocca has really made this point, as he's made many important points. Of course, he's been on our podcast, and you're seeing more and more people in the world talk about not just Will, Bode, and Mike Paulson, who are going to be back on the show at a certain point. They've kind of um, signaled their willingness to come back on. But Gerard is also now being increasingly discussed. I think David French in the New York Times has a, an explicit shout out to Gerard this week, Andy. Gerard has said, listen, this is the fate of the 14th Amendment generally. People sometimes don't take it seriously for the longest time. You know, racial equality, the application of the Bill of Rights against the states, certain aspects of voting rights under Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. We had Jack Balkin on saying, actually, Section 4 is an important thing, and people sometimes just you know trivialize it. That has to do with the national debt, and uh, came up with questions like the debt ceiling. Um, it refers back to Confederate debt but it, it has certain aspects of it that move on into the future as well. That Jack thinks are relevant t today to debates about the debt ceiling and, and the like. Section five, which is about congressional power, the court you know, originally in, in a litigation called the civil rights cases, read that too narrowly. All the very serious people in the establishment for decades trivialized many parts of the 14th Amendment, and they gave us Plessy versus Ferguson, which was a disgrace. And they gave us the civil rights cases of 1883, uh, still never overruled, which were a disgrace. And Gerard says, look, we've looked back and we've actually, as a legal community, recognized we were wrong to trivialize the 14th Amendment. And so Brown repudiates Plessy. If you're a gun person, see, the 14th Amendment was about the right of guns in the home. And we disregarded that for a long time until Heller and City of Chicago versus McDonald and Bruin. So Gerard says, look, 
We trivialized section one. We trivialized section two. We trivialized section four. We trivialized section five. And, and oh, the very wise people in Washington, D.C., they are trivializing section because they didn't ever learn it in school. And I don't mean to, you know, be mean to them, but here are the people I'm talking about. They are my personal friends, many of them, and they know that they're my personal friends. They're friends of this podcast, many of them. But I don't think, you know, Ruth Marcus had a great education. She went to Yale College, Harvard Law School, but she didn't learn about Section 3, and so this looks like a gimmick to her. It's not that, you know, Trump, this wasn't the Civil War. That's exactly her intuition. That's exactly Sam Zakharoff's int intuition, a very great scholar, NYU Law School, Yale Law School graduate, a friend, um, went to law school with, with me. That is what Russ Douthat, you know, he presumably, he writes this piece in the New York Times, and the title is, January 6th was no insurrection. Okay, because they don't know the history of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. They don't know the story of John B. Floyd. They only know the story of the second insurrection, the Civil War, because they were taught that in school, but not of the first insurrection. And that's the deep source of many of the pundits and their resistance to this, because they actually don't know what Section 3 was all about. And Gerard brilliantly says, this happened to all the rest of the 14th Amendment, and we should learn from that. The 14th Amendment sponsors were radical Republicans who had a new vision, a profound vision of America that reworked lots of uh, parts of the, the pre-existing legal order. And it's in Eric Foner's phrase, it's a second American revolution and it's not just about what happened in the 1860s. It lays down everywhere else enduring principles, much more sweeping congressional power, uh, changing the rules of apportionments, uh, getting rid of the three-fifths clause, in effect, revising the rules of apportionments in Section 2, applying the Bill of Rights against the states, promising sweeping birthright citizenship and birthright equality, racial equality, sex equality. Our audience knows, I believe that first sentence is about sexual orientation equality. That's what its logic is. We're all born equal. And if you're born gay, you're equal to someone who's born straight. Wow, that's a radical idea. And Andy, only recently are we, have we begun to live up to that. That's Gerard's point. The 14th Amendment elsewhere was radical, and we're only now catching up to it. Let's do the same thing for Section 3. It wasn't just about one thing that happened in the 1860s. It's about enduring principles of equality, of congressional power. But yes, you're saying also of threats, existential threats to democracy, the centrality of oath-taking, the real special evil of oath-breaking, and how we should respond to that. Yeah, I think the lesson of history that you that you alluded to with Plessy and, and other, you know, disgraceful, uh, you know, precedents and practices uh, of ignoring the equality promises of the 14th Amendment and others is that we disregard or trivialize or ignore or try to get around um, or forget about the 14th Amendment at our peril. Right. And I think that when we're talking about rights on the left, like uh, rights of counsel and the rights of criminal defendants or rights of speech of unpopular folk, racial equality, sex equality, sexual orientation equality. But I also think that for rights that are beloved by conservatives, the right to have a gun in the home for self-protection. Our audience knows I don't have one, but I think that was central to the 14th Amendment. And I talk about, again, the paradigm case, which was the Freedmen's Bureau statute and how that was a companion to the 14th Amendment. So I play by this, these consistent ground rules, and that's why I was not opposed at all to the, the Bruin 
decision on its facts. Definitely, I'm very supportive of a great decision, City of Chicago versus McDonald, which affirmed a right of people to have guns in their homes for self-protection against states and localities. That's Sam Alito's maybe greatest opinion. It's most important, surely, before Dobbs, is most important decision uh, for the court. And we cite it with great approval, Andy, not just in the brief, but in the last sentence of the brief, or the last paragraph of the brief. In our conclusion, we talk about landmark cases in the history of America where the Supreme Court has identified the central meaning of a constitutional provision in using this paradigm case method. And, and part of that, one, and one example that we actually use is City of Chicago versus McDonald. And that was a conservative result. Our audience might want to remember that I supported the 14th Amendment framers actually did believe that people had rights to have guns in their homes for self-protection. And because the 14th Amendment is so central and fundamental and <clears throat> radical and ultimately just, I would say, important, it also has to be carried out. So sometimes, you know, Congress is given power in Section 5 to pass statutes to uh, implement, you know, its, uh, its provisions. But sometimes it's the court that says, this is what the 14th Amendment says, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, and you have to do this. So Akilah Mar is a citizen, even though his parents weren't at the time of his birth. And even though there might or might not have been a statute, you know, at that point, it doesn't matter. Either way, he would be a citizen. And so too with Nikki Haley. Yes. So, all right. And so, and I think that... That little throwaway sentence, you know, even if there is a statute or it doesn't matter, is kind of what Section 5 says. <laughs> that, you know, the, the Congress, you can pass statute, but you don't have to. Okay. Um, that's sort of a, a layman's interpretation of Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. All right. And for certain things, we're going to talk about this more when we get to the 20 questions. For certain things, you do need a statute. You do mm -hmm. need a statute if you want to have criminal punishments to enforce various parts of the 14th Amendment. For example, sometimes you need a statute if you want to spend money of a certain sort to implement um, the vision of the, the 14th Amendment. For certain things, yeah, only God can make a tree, only Congress can make a statute. But for other things, you don't have to wait for Congress to act to say as a court that segregation is uh, unconstitutional, that indigent criminal defendants have to be provided counsel, that massive malapportionment violating one person, one vote is unconstitutional. You don't need to wait for a statute for those things. And the court didn't in its history to apply the Bill of Rights against the states generally. Courts didn't require congressional statutes there. And that's where the great Rick Pildes actually in an episode that we, whom we mentioned in an earlier episode, says in this New Yorker interview, that's just generally not how other parts of the 14th Amendment work, that you need a congressional statute. But lots of folks are saying, oh, you need a congressional statute, including just this morning, um, a, a piece uploaded by my dear friend, Michael McConnell. He says, oh, you need a statute. And Sam Zakroff says, oh, you need a statute. And Ruth Marcus says, oh, you need a statute. This is becoming... You know, I think one of the, the memes that's out there for those folks who don't want to take the 14th Amendment seriously, oh, well, we take it seriously, but only after Congress takes it seriously. And we're going to see s several other reasons why that isn't correct, because we're originalists and we're going to give our audience some more originalist history as we give folks um, who read the brief 
more originalist history. But the first point is just, gee, that's not how the rest of the 14th Amendment works, that you need a statute before you can take seriously Section 1 or Section 2 or Section 4 or what have you. Well, okay, but if I'm if I'm on the if I'm on the other side and I'm saying, oh, you need a statute, so I I'm saying, well, you just laid out a couple of circumstances where you would need a statute, where if you're if it's if you're going to charge someone with a crime, punish them with criminal punishments, um, or if you have certain uh, monetary allocation uh, associated with what you're doing. Okay, is that it? Are the, you know, we, we need a bright line here. Because otherwise, people will say, well, you know, it's just when you feel like you need a statute. So what is the standard? When do you need a statute and when don't you? Well, the rest of the Constitution says, and our audience has heard me say on many occasions, there's this basic fundamental principle. It's called United States, it's in the case, United States versus Hudson and Goodwin. It's a landmark opinion by the Marshall Court saying there is no federal common law of crimes. And this grew out of a great national debate over the Sedition Act of 1798. And there was a massive, massive national conversation about this and basic unanimity that emerged that you can't go around criminally punishing people unless there's a statute. The one sentence answer, Andy, is there are other provisions in the Constitution that are emphatic that crimes require federal statutes, federal crimes require federal statutes, and that spending of money is something that only Congress can do. That's because there are other provisions of the Constitution that are absolutely clear on this. And they were pre-existing and the 14th Amendment could have changed those things. It could change virtually anything. It's an amendment, but it didn't. There's no evidence that it um, aimed to change those bedrock principles. Now, let me just, those bedrock principles sometimes are actually articulated in famous Supreme Court decisions that were on the books in before the Civil War on the idea that you need a federal statute before you can have a federal crime that puts someone in, in prison. This idea emerged out of a great national constitutional conversation. Our audience may have heard of the Alien Sedition Acts. The Sedition Act of 1798 made it a crime to criticize the president. And civil libertarians were outraged. And the supporters, this was signed into law by John Adams, said, oh, actually, this statute is a liberalization because of under the common law, truth isn't a defense when you say something derogatory about an official. Under this statute that we've passed, oh, truth is a defense. So this statute is actually a softening of the common law that would otherwise exist as the backdrop. And the counter is, no, there's no federal common law of crimes at all. In the absence of the federal statute, there would be total freedom. And this statute takes away that freedom against the baseline of no criminal liability. So there's this great national conversation about that, and it culminates in a landmark martial court decision. Our audience has heard us mention it before, but just here's the one sentence. And everyone who adopts the 14th Amendment knows this sentence. Quote, the legislative authority of the union, that is Congress, must first make an act a crime, affix a punishment to it, and declare the court the child jurisdiction of the offense. So that's the baseline, a ruling from the 18-teens. If you want to change that in the 14th Amendment, Section 5, oh, oh you can, or oh, Section 1 or 2 or 3 or 4 or 5, but until you do, the baseline is, ah, okay, only 
Congress can actually enforce things with criminal punishments. And they didn't want to change that. So that's one thing that Section 5 is all about. If you want criminal punishments, oh, Congress can do it. We're going to authorize Congress to do it, but Congress and has to, has to do it. Courts can't do that on their own. So too, the Constitution generally provides in Article 1 that if you want to spend money, Congress has to authorize it. So if money spending is involved, and there's a landmark Supreme Court case that says this, Missouri versus Jenkins, which we cite in the brief. Oh, so you might say, what was Section 5 about? P Professor, if you think it's generally self-executing, why did you need Section 5 at all? And I said, well, at a minimum, you need Section 5 because only Congress can have criminal punishment because of other things in the Constitution and background principles, and only Congress can spend money in all sorts of situations. So if Congress wanted to make, let's say, the violation of, of Section 3 a crime, so for example, if you say, well, you're disqualified, but if you try to run, even if you're disqualified, that's a crime and we're going to punish you for it, or something like that. Congress um, did we, actually at one okay. point have such a law on the yes, books. I and understand it, that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, okay. exactly. Right. Uh, okay. and, and maybe that law lapsed, but that doesn't mean that Section 3 is unenforceable. It just means you don't have criminal punishments attached to its violation. That's all it means. Okay. And we're clear that the disqualification from office is not a criminal punishment. Yeah. If it were, then we're criminally punishing everyone who's under 35 years old and everyone who's not a natural born citizen and everyone who happens to be a member of the House or Senate because they can't simultaneously be president and everyone who's already served in the presidency for 10 or more years, um, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So, so no one would reasonably argue that Section 3 is inflicting criminal punishment. Oh, people do argue about it, and I might even say it's a reasonable argument, but in the end, I would say it's a losing argument. It's less persuasive than the counter. You're saying that Section 3 is self-executing. You're saying if it imposed a criminal punishment, then it might not be self-executing because of Hudson and Goodwin. The government needs to spend money in order to administer Section 3 then it might, it might require further enacting legislation. But because it doesn't do those things, and there's nothing else in it, that would cause it to not be self-executing. Yeah. Okay. All right. So on the, on the subject of self-execution, I think what we, and just in general, you know, we've talked about the intent of the people that, uh, that, that wrote the 14th Amendment. What were they trying to accomplish, and what, how does John B. Floyd uh, reflect very clearly their goals. Um, so then when it actually was implemented, are there things in that early implementation of Section 3 that shed light on this case? Yes. Originalists pay attention not just to the words of the document and the, the um, history that launched a constitutional provision, but we also often pay attention to the early implementation. So we talk about Article 2 and the president's power of subordinates, and we talk about George Washington's decision to insist that he has a right to fire cabinet officers at will and Congress's agreement with that in a series of statutes that we call the decision of 1789. And those are so important that there's basically unanimity on the court today, 9-0, and broad unanimity in the culture today that, of course, a president can fire a cabinet officer at will, that, of course, President Trump wasn't stuck with Barack Obama's 
uh, cabinet team. And President Biden wasn't stuck with President Trump's cabinet team. And that even within the middle of an administration, a president can sack someone that that president himself, one day herself, actually appointed. That's 9-0 today in the Supreme Court and very broadly understood in our culture. Of course, cabinet officers serve at the pleasure of the president, as do other folks. And Andy and I are smiling because there's a great West Wing episode about, I serve at the pleasure of President Bartlett. Okay, And that's true of cabinet officers as well as Leo McGarry. Um, who's chief of staff and technically not a cabinet officer, and the other White House staffers who are not cabinet officers. But cabinet officers serve at the pleasure of the president, and the Constitution doesn't say this clearly at all in its words. It talks about appointments but not removals. And in the ratification uh, process, actually, the Federalist Papers seem to suggest that the Senate will play a role in firing as well as hiring. But that's not our practice. That's because of early implementation. Will Bode has written about this. So has Caleb Nelson. The Supreme Court has cited them and others. Sometimes this, the word associated with this is gloss. Sometimes it's settlement. Sometimes it's liquidation. That's a word from Madison, the Federalist number 37. But early implementation, early applications count. And here's the key point, Andy, in our brief. The Grant administration applied Section 3 self-executingly without any congressional statute. So Section 3 and the rest of the 14th Amendment are proposed in early summer 1866. This is, in effect, the Republican Party's platform for the off-year election. They've won the war. Take a, a big step back. 1860, what's their platform? Read our lips, no new slavery. We won't mess with slavery in the states where it exists, but we want to prevent its spread into the West. It's a cancer. It has to be stopped. Containment. No new slavery. That's the Republican Party platform of 1860. That's what Lincoln gets elected on. By 1864, they've moved dramatically their platform is the 13th Amendment, which has been already proposed and has passed one House of Congress, but not the other House. Now, read our lips, no slavery. We want to get rid of it everywhere, immediately, without just compensation. Wow, that's very different from 1860. That's our platform. You like it, vote for us. You don't, vote against us. That's the movie Lincoln. That's when the Spielberg movie begins. Now, it's the off year election of 1866. Ordinarily, there, you know, political parties don't convene every two years. They convene every four years, every presidential election year. But, but they need to actually have something to run. The war is over. People are exhausted. And they want to know, well, what the hell was that all about? Okay. You know, what's the meaning of it all? And they finally, in 1866, in the summer, come up with the 14th Amendment, which is like a five-part, their proposal to, in effect, end the war establish the peace, and here are going to be the new terms of the new reunion, the second American founding. That's their political platform, and they run on it, and they win on that in the off-year election, and so it's proposed by Congress. It doesn't get ratified by three-quarters of the states until the conventional dating is 1868. There's some complexities I'm going to skip over, but it's not officially proclaimed ratified until the middle of 1868, and now that is a presidential election year, and um, the Republican Party, Lincoln is dead, they offer Grant as you know the new Lincoln man who will carry out Lincoln's agenda. And as soon as Grant, so Grant is elected 
almost immediately after the 14th Amendment is ratified. Okay, And he tells his soldiers who are engaged in reconstructing some of the former Confederacy, places like Virginia, he instructs them to follow the 14th Amendment. And they follow it. And they follow it by applying Section 3 and disabling certain people who are ineligible under Section 3, preventing them from actually holding office. And there's no congressional statute. And we tell that story in the brief. One hero is a man named Canby, who is a, a, a good enough soldier, but an excellent lawyer. And he takes it seriously in Virginia. There are other folks who take it seriously in other Southern jurisdictions, as ordered to do so by William Tecumseh Sherman under the orders of President Grant. So I've told you who my villain is in my story. It's John B. Floyd above all others, even above Robert E. Lee, Jeff Davis, and Alexander Stevens. Who's the hero of my story? It's Grant, who, by the way, confronts Floyd and Fort Donaldson, and that begins his rise, but he is Lincoln's heir, H-E-I-R. He's Lincoln's man. Okay, Lincoln is, has been assassinated. Who's going to pick up the flag that almost fell when Lincoln fell? He's going to pick up that flag and carry it forward. There are three real possibilities. There's William Howard Seward. He's a Lincoln man. Um, but he was almost killed himself the night of Ford's Theater. He was slashed in the throat by one of Booth's Confederates, Lewis Powell, sometimes called Lewis Payne, and almost killed. So he's kind of out of the action. That basically leaves two people to carry Lincoln's flag forward. His Secretary of the Treasury, Simon P. Chase, who he nominates to the Chief Justiceship when Roger Taney passes away. So Simon P. Chase is a Lincoln man, very much. And so is Ulysses S. Grant, a Lincoln man. Those are the two great Lincoln men. And America picks, and they both want to be president in 1868. Oh, they both do. And Grant, because he's a great war hero, he is, he is Washington, you know, a great war hero, the reincarnation of Washington. He could have been probably nominated by either party, but he picks the Republicans. Chase is willing to be nominated by the Republicans, but he's also willing to be nominated by the Democrats, but he doesn't get the nomination of either party. He's the sitting Chief Justice of the United States, and he's got these presidential ambitions, you see. Okay. And he runs so as a Democrat in 1872, in fact. So he, he's been bit by the bug, the presidential bug. But I say, this is the real choice. Who's the true heir, the truest heir of Lincoln? And, and America, the two basic choices are Chase and Grant, and America picks Grant. And Grant is president now. He's now in power, you know, the way Buchanan once was, and, and after that, Lincoln, of course. And he and his men enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment without a congressional statute. I love you, Michael McConnell. I hope you're listening to this episode because you think you need a congressional statute. No, you don't. And people can disagree about this, but damn it, I've got Grant on my side. And you've only got Simon P. Chase in a circuit court opinion, but here's the problem with Simon P. Chase. One, he opposed the 14th Amendment at the time, and Section 3 in particular, and Grant supported it. Two, the American people picked Grant and not Chase. Three, Simon P. Chase said all sorts of totally inconsistent things on circuit, and not just inconsistent things, but kind of very confused and confusing things. And four, 
almost every serious historian believes that Chase is doing some of this stuff because he's running for president and he's twisting himself in a pretzel so that maybe he could be president in the election of 1872. And of course, America doesn't pick Simon P. Chase. It picks, once again, Ulysses S. Grant. And it's re-ratifying, in effect, the vision of the 14th Amendment, you see, that Grant was always true to. So my audience knows that in my book, The Words That Made Us, I have dedicatees, and it's dedicated to Lin-Manuel Miranda, among others, and, and his spouse, Vanessa Nadal. It's also dedicated to Ron Chernow. Oh, and the great Neil Katyal, who introduced me to all these folks. But Ron Chernow is a great historian. He's actually a Yaley, Andy. But he writes a great biography of Hamilton, and our audience knows that I'm a Hamilton man, and we had all those episodes about Hilton. So it's about Hamilton. But John Turner also writes a great biography of Washington, and he also writes a great biography of Grant, and that biography is cited in our brief because Grant is a kind of reincarnation of Washington, and I've got Grant on my side. And in a novel, you see, I, I kind of have my villain, but I also have my hero. I, I respect Chase. I really do. He's a great abolitionist leader, but he's no Ulysses S. Grant. He's no U.S. Grant on this issue. Grant was the person who from the beginning got it, understood Section 3 and supported it and faithfully executed it, you know, preserved, protected, and defended it as president. And that gloss is really important if you're a certain kind of originalist. It's not just what people thought when they were ratifying it, but how the, it was implemented early on. And it was implemented early on without a congressional statute. And I've also got people in Congress at that time saying that Section 3 will go into effect. Senators, that the word they use is the moment as soon as 14th Amendment is ratified, they're discussing some other legislation before the 14th Amendment is before they formally ratified, but they say in that conversation, well, of course, the instant, the moment, that's the, their word, that the 14th Amendment is ratified, it will go, Section 3 will go into effect self-executingly, such as, in fact, to oblige certain people who are already in office to vacate their offices. So here's, uh, here's a couple of quotes on that. And uh, so just to preface that, you were talking before about uh, about Chase. You mentioned that he said conflicting things when he was on circuit. And I think the idea here is that the, the reason we're talking about that, about Chase in particular, is because he ruled in a case called Griffith's case, which we've mentioned in, in earlier episodes of this podcast. But that ruling was on circuit, and that had to do with self, self-execution in a way. It had to do with other things also. And he, but that is, that's not a binding precedent. Um, no, not at all. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's it's not like overruling, you know, fundamental case. Um, to if the court were to disagree with that ruling, so that's and that I'm, ruling is inconsistent with what Grant was already doing, uh, and and it's, that's not acknowledged by Chase. And in fact, Chase says factually incorrect things in that opinion, and and legally confused things, and things that are also inconsistent with what Chase also did in the case involving Jefferson Davis. He let right. Jefferson Davis off the hook in a really weird opinion that uh, you, maybe there's a political explanation for it, but as law is not so impressive. Right. And that does create a certain inconsistency with his ruling in Griffith's case um, as well. So he ruled in in, uh, in Griffin's case. I think he may have said Griffith's case. So I, I, I apologize for that. Okay. But now getting back to Grant and the officer that he placed in charge in Virginia, this is Brevet Major General Edward Canby. 
and we have a you know fair amount about him in the brief. I think it's it's worth uh, sharing some of the quotes with our with our audience here. First of all, you said that Grant thought he was a very good lawyer, and here's here's a quote from Grant. Um, he said that he took as much interest in reading and digesting every act of Congress. His character was as pure as his talent and learning were great. That's from Grant. So he thought he was a great lawyer, and that was part of why he put him in that position. Indeed, okay, so he, he also described him as, quote, naturally studious and inclined to the law. You know, mm -hmm. he's an officer of great merit, but especially he's a legalist. Okay, so now he takes over and he announces, can be does, that he's going to disqualify people he's, uh, for this reason. He says they would not um, be allowed to enter upon the duties of the offices to which they may have been chosen unless their disabilities have been removed by Congress. And then, so that's, you know, pretty straight on with Section 3. And then he goes on to remove a number of, of candidates elect, um, at least two, you say. But then there's a footnote saying that in Congress, they, they, you have people discussing more than a dozen of them that he's actually either removed or prevented from taking office. Um, right. And here's a quote from John Bingham, who is a very important architect of the 14th Amendment. And he quote from John Bingham on the 14th Amendment carries special weight. And here's what he says talking about Canby. He says, that veteran officer, faithful to his duty, excluded from the legislature of Virginia in its organization every man who could not swear he was disqualified by the provisions of the 14th article of the amendments of the Constitution. Um, so, and that's prior to a statute being enacted. So, and Andy, just on that, so there wasn't this elaborate fact-finding that can be engaged in. He basically, this is interesting, he basically asked people, can you swear to the fact, can you take an oath, in effect, to the, to the fact that you are eligible under these provisions. So once again, <laughs> there's even a swearing or an oath about whether you've been you've been uh, faithful your to your oath. They believed in oaths and swearing, and they thought people told the truth. But that's that's about you know telling the truth rather than making a promise. There are different kinds of oaths: oaths when you promise something, or oaths where you you know uh, to tell the truth about some past action. Okay, so so audience, first of all, let me take a moment for our, our listeners that are interested in gaining continuing legal education after listening to this podcast from the New Jersey State Bar Association and its uh, agreements that it has with the with New York uh, and Pennsylvania, so that if you are a member of the bar in New York, New Jersey, or Pennsylvania, you can get CLE credit directly just by going to podcast njsba.com fill out the form and put in the code this week the code is consent consent is the code and it is not case sensitive as always if you're in another state again there's reciprocity in almost every state so you can consult with your state bar association for how to use this and uh, someone wrote to me the other day that they were successful in the state of Tennessee at doing this just for example um, but there are many states where this has been uh, effective so it's not uh, we're not just saying that almost every state you can get the, the credit and we encourage you to take advantage of that thank you to uh, New Jersey State Bar Association once again for partnering on this all right so we've talked about kind of the big arguments and what's left in the brief is the 
20 questions. Those are important as well, but uh, obviously we don't have time for that in this episode, so that will await uh, either next week or a future episode, depending on events. Um, but that's important, and we will go through it. Um, so before we wrap up, Akhil, I think it behooves us to talk about the great people that we worked with on this brief. Yes, that begins, of course, with my brother Vic, who's counsel of record, and this is our third brief together. Our legal partner, the great Chris Duggan, he's a great lawyer up in uh, Boston. He's argued um, more than 100 jury cases in his, um, in his career. That makes him very unusual because there are not very many jury cases anymore. He has put us in touch with, and we worked with him on uh, our previous briefs, and so this is the third time he's been kind of on our brief writing team. Big shout outs to him. Very grateful. He has partnered us with Legal Printer. This is the third brief that she's worked with us on. Her name is Rita Hemingway, and she's spectacular. She gets stuff done really quickly and professionally and looks great. And she's so easy to work with. And we're very grateful to her. Okay. Then there's this fellow. Don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, his name is Lipka. And he has, <laughs> this is the third brief that he's you know, been involved on. And every time he, he reads everything with great care and he always comes up with amazing suggestions. His biggest one this time around was bringing to my attention. They had many, many interventions, but the biggest one, Andy, of course, as we remember is you brought to my attention a piece in the New York times by Ted Widmer in early January, uh, shortly after January 6th, talking about what happened on February 13th, 1861, because I didn't know the details of that. Ted Widmer wrote an, an op-ed, a guest essay in the New York Times about all that, which we cite in the brief, and Widmer was building on an earlier book that he had written about these, these events. So look, I mean, it's so amazing. January 6th is as to Trump as February 13th was as to Floyd. Okay, this, that, that I perf perfects the analogy, the, com the comparison between these, these two things. So that was, and you had many amazing contributions, but that was spectacular. Now I have four students who worked on this. Several of them worked on some of the previous briefs and, and each one um, had at least one utterly astonishing contribution. So let me mention the four of them. There's Arshan Barzani. He's, he is or is about to be a captain in the armed forces. And I tasked him with many things, but especially with focusing on the role of Canby. And I knew about one thing that Canby had done. And Arshan said, oh, it, it's Canby, but he did way more than you thought. Oh, and, and here's what other people said about Canby. Oh, and here's, it's not just Canby in Virginia. It's another general, a general, the military governor of Georgia, Alfred Terry, who enforced Section 3 self-executingly in Georgia on the orders of William Tecumseh Sherman and Ulysses S. Grant. These are, of course, the great heroes of the Civil War. Arshan found spectacular stuff for us about self-execution. And then there's Sam Desai. He's a first-year student. The others are all third-year students. He worked with Jeff Rosen at the National Constitution Center. And of course, our audience knows that Jeff's brother-in-law is Neil Katyal. It's a small world who's you know, been on the podcast. Um, and um, Sam found astonishing stuff about the first insurrection, quote after quote after quote that we used. So did 
Jordan K. Ron, who is a third-year student, managing editor of the Yale Law Journal, who's helped me on, on previous briefs. And he found quote after quote after quote, especially about Floyd as Benedict Arnold. The team, especially of Sam and Jordan, found you know, all the qu- quotes that we featured. Uh, of course, I, I knew about Floyd, and I knew we could find stuff, but I hadn't found it all. And I said, look in these newspapers and look in this part of the Congressional Globe. And they did it all. And in five days, you know, they found all this stuff. And it was there because we're not making stuff up about Floyd. But they found spectacular quote after quote after quote. And Jordan also put the whole thing together as managing editor of the Law Journal. He's very attention to proper citation form and all the court's rules. We want this actually to be a very professional brief, even though you know we're not a big law firm with dozens of, of lawyers whom we can throw at the project. Our brief, when you look at it, we think not just substantively, it compares to all the other amicus briefs submitted by all these big law firms, but, but just every little comma and semicolon. Thank you, Jordan, for attending to all of that. And then there's Jacob Hutt. And Jacob actually was my student at at Yale College as an undergrad. I think he's been my TA maybe five times already. Jacob has also been my TA, and and Sam is going to be a TA this semester. Jacob found the most amazing piece of evidence on whether the president is an officer or not. Okay, so of course, lots of people are talking about it, but he found a statute. And a statute is a precursor to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It's a test of statute, but here's the provision of the statute. This is what we say at page 18, and this was entirely Jacob's find. I think I may have read this a long time ago, but it didn't have it in the front of my mind. I had maybe forgotten about the details, but of course, as soon as he saw it, you know, he said, aha, and he sent it to me, and um, this is what, at page 18. When civil war lawmakers aimed to exempt the president, because one of these memes out there is, oh, it applies to dog catchers. Oh, it applies to cabinet officials and, and judges and justices, but somehow it doesn't apply to presidents. And that makes no sense. Although I am going to be debating a week from now uh, up at Harvard, former Attorney General Michael Mukasey, who I believe will be taking the position that the president isn't covered by Section 3 of the 14th amendment, the presidency, that presidency somehow isn't an office or an officer or whatever. Well, here's what we say in the brief about that. When civil war lawmakers aimed to exempt the president, they did so expressly. The Ironclad Oath Act of 1862 applied to, quote, every person elected or appointed to any office of honor or profit under the government of the United States, either in the civil, military, or naval departments of the public service, accepting the president of the United States, unquote. And then the brief goes on to say, and and thank you, Jacob, Jacob Hutt, this language in a landmark oath law predecessor to Section 3 itself proves that Congress and the public plainly understood that, quote, the president of the United States, unquote, was emphatically a person who held, and quote, office under the government of the United States. Like, that's as clear as it's possible to be. And, and now it's not one congressperson, one senator saying this, one representative saying this, you know, 50 newspaper editorials saying this. It's a statute and not just any statute, but the a precursor statute of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment passed in effect by an earlier version of the same Congress that's going to pass the 14th Amendment in general in Section 3 in particular. And it's all there in 
United States statutes at large and the United States Code. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Arshan. Thank you, Sam. You know, I had four law students going up against Jones Day, you know, former Solicitor General of the United States, you know, aided by dozens of big law lawyers, you know, and I've got Andy Lipka and Chris Duggan, you know, and, and Vic and Rita and these four students. I'll take my team any day, any day. Yeah. And, you know, these, uh, these law students are very impressive. We had the, the, pl- the pleasure of having their company when we went down to the oral argument in the Moore versus the United States, not Sam, but the other people were there. And, uh, you know, boy, they're, they're not just, uh, Blue worker bees, tra- you know, tracking down Congressional Globe uh, citations. They're they're great lawyers in the making, and uh, and great people, and from you know the variety of political persuasions. So there you go. I just want to compliment you on providing. You know, one of your roles as as a professor is to is to train these people to be great lawyers, and part of it is, you know, sure the theory in class and that sort of thing, but. This was, uh, you know, as a doctor and having gone through clinical training, you know, there's meaningful cl- clinical training and there's meaningless clinical training. And, you know, this was as a great experience that they'll remember their whole lives. And they learned some lessons here about uh, the right and the wrong way to do things. So good for you as, as a professor for, for sharing that. And good for me for having the opportunity to <laughs> sort of bask in, the, uh, in all of this. So thank you. And Andy, we also found in the course of our investigation that some other folks have said some plainly false things. Maybe some of that's going to come up in the debate that I have with Michael Mukasey uh, mm. next week. So, Sounds like someone's keeping their powder dry for now. Okay. General Mukasey, make sure that you know your stuff for the debate. My team found stuff because my team is great. I'm really proud of them. Okay, so we'll be uh, we'll be back next week with uh, with more, uh, not more versus the United States, but more on this, I think. Um, and hope you know, depending on events, maybe we'll talk about this debate you have, or maybe we'll talk about the twenty questions, or maybe something else will happen. We'll see. Okay, until then, thank you.